uh, your comments about the message this morning, uh, especially about, uh, you know, the story and, uh, of, you know, with the bike and, and the Harley-Davidson. I, I just think that everybody should be me for at least one day. And you talk about an adventure. <laughs> Psalm 32. Okay, I think, uh, I think we're pretty good. Let's, uh, let's ask God to bless us as we get ready to study His Word. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity to tread the holy ground of these pages of the Psalter, Father, and, and, to, and, to, and to, to walk slowly through these words that were first birthed in Your heart. I'm, I'm so thankful, Father, that, that, that this man David was inspired to, to write uh, Holy Spirit-filled words about his own life that, that was constantly seeking a way back to you. And we struggle with these same things, Father. And, and this, this psalm is just so gorgeous and so changing of us when we, we think about it and meditate and lay it upon our heart like treasure. That this is what we ask tonight, Father, that you will bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. For we seek, Father, in all that we do to, to know you so profoundly and intimately that it is, without a shadow of a doubt, in our own mind, our own thinking. This relationship with you is the greatest blessing that we can imagine. And so as we, we study, Father, we ask for this kind of discernment, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 32, verse 5, is a verse I think that every Christian should memorize. David is writing, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And that's the end of the quote. And then David writes, And you... God forgave the guilt of my sin. That verse, I, for me, and I, and I think for all people, answers the question that we have to deal with from time to time. The question is this, how do you get up off of the ground when you've failed? How do you, how do you get up off the ground when you know that you've done something, that it's, it's your fault that, uh, that you are the guilty one. How do you get up off the ground with joy? How do you get up off the ground even as a better individual, as a better human? How do you get up without being crippled for the rest of your life? Well, uh, this psalm, and we're going to divide it sort of in two areas or at least two angles or themes through it, there's there, it, dealing with the theme of confession. And the first is the knowledge that there is a need for confession in every human's life. We can't ignore this first part of the psalm. He says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That word blessed means, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean just somebody that's got a, a, a great case of, of, of happiness. It, it's much deeper, much more profound. Think about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. It's that kind of blessedness. This word means complete wellness of being. That profound, it's, it's this profound wholeness of being, just as Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes. Now, to whom does this kind of blessedness come to? Well, according to David, David says that the most fulfilled life belongs to people who have been forgiven. 
David says that if you want this kind of a blessed life, this sense of well-being, profound well-being, then you need to know that it exists in the forgiveness of God. Jesus teaches, in a sense, the same thing in Luke chapter 7. In that chapter, verse 36, there is this Pharisee by the name of Simon who asked Jesus to come to his house along with some other Pharisees and people to eat with him. Now, you know, over the last several years, we've talked about, you know, in the first century, there is this uh, phenomenon in the culture known as haverot in Hebrew or, or table fellowship. And, and we've talked about it before. It, it, it basically is a reference to the significance of coming to eat together. That when you ate together, it wasn't just a couple of people at Luby's, you know, that kind of acknowledge each other from across the room saying, oh, I, you know, I see that you got the peppered steak. In the first century in Israel, when people came together to eat, it was something significant. You, you shared the table. You shared the bread and, and, the, and the relish and, and the drink with people that politically and spiritually and in terms of values and many times financially, but at least spiritually, were on the same page as you are. And so this Pharisee, understanding that Jesus is a very holy man, he's this rabbi, a great teacher, everybody's thronging to him. He's a Pharisee and he, he thinks Jesus is, has the same kind of mindset. And he invites Jesus to come and to eat with him because there's this commonality and he wants to have fellowship with Jesus. But while Jesus is eating at the table, look now at verse 37. There is this woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. And she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So what does she, she do? She brings this alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them and this pharisee by the name of simon is just scandalized by this all this touching and and all of this 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 weeping and this display of of emotion and her touching of this guest by this woman who is who is known to be a sinner and, and, and Jesus turns to Simon and gives to Simon this world-class rebuke. And he ends it by saying in verse 47, you know, and, and basically a couple of verses before that, he says, you know, out of all of these guys that were forgiven of their debts, who do you think, you know, was most, most, most grateful, most thankful? And Simon answers rightly. And he says, you know, it was the guy that was forgiven the most. And there in verse 47, Jesus says, I tell you, Simon, and everyone else who's listening, that, many, that her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves what? Little. What Jesus seems to be teaching here is that the most loving people in the world, the most sensitive people, the most compassionate, the most love-filled hearts in the world, and, and David teaches that the most blessed people in life are the ones who have been forgiven much. In Luke chapter 7, there are three kinds of people, according to this text. There are the people who, who feel they are too good to be forgiven. Now, they may sin from time to time, but they're basically better than Joe Schmo from Kokomo ac across the street, and so they're not worried too much. I don't need to worry about this forgiveness thing. I've got the life in the right direction pretty well. Got it down pat. But then there's a second group, people who feel that they are too bad to be forgiven. And then there's a third group, people who know that they need it and they get it. And if you know that you need it, I mean, you, you know without a shadow of a doubt 
that there's this great darkness that envelops your, your heart. And, and you get forgiveness of it. Then David says, you're one of the happiest people on the planet. Now that is a remarkable thing. And it's partly remarkable even, well, it, it, it's even more remarkable for us that live in this modern age. And, and, you know, when you talk about forgiveness this way, you know, it always raises a few eyebrows. And, and some are going to ask, you know, if this, if this is just a problem of guilt that primitive traditional cultures had in, 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 in different ages, but now that we're modern and we've grown past a lot of the traditional and primitive notions of sin and guilt, that this no longer applies to us. Modern people say that when you have a society in which right and wrong is narrowly defined and appropriate rules and laws are put in, in place and everybody is held accountable, then certainly you're going to have all of these feelings of guilt. But today's different. We've gotten to that place where things are not the way that they were supposed to be in, or the, they're, they're uh, not the way that they used to be in, in, in primitive times. Everyone gets to choose who they want to be. They get to choose their values. They get to choose their own principles. But you and I both know that it's not quite that simple, is it? To choose our own values. Let's go back to verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are what? Covered. Circle that word in your Bible. What David is alluding to with the words whose sins are covered, I think, is this intentional connection to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, you know, were created at this time when there was no anxiety in the world and there was no anxiety in the world because there was no sin. Everything was perfect. Everything was the way that, that God had imagined it in His mind before He spoke the powerful word that created it. But then all of a sudden there's this, this, this moment in which they have violated God's word and they have violated God's will by eating of the tree. And so what is it that they do? Verse 7, their eyes have been opened and they realize that they're what? They're naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They knew at that point that they needed to be covered. And why did they need to be covered? Because they realized their own vulnerability more appropriately and biblically. It's because they were wanting to cover up because of their sin. And quite frankly, I believe that deep down everyone knows this and, and feels this and experiences this, even modern people. That's why it's so appropriate. The, the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, you know, who was very much a modern, you know, having died in 1980 as an existentialist, you know, did not believe in moral absolutes, but he writes something very interesting in his book on, on being and nothingness. In it, there's this really famous illustration that he, that he uses to, to get this point across about the angst that everybody feels in the world. And what is... The illustration goes like this. There's this man who is in a room and he sees a light coming through a door and it is this keyhole and he looks through the keyhole and he's able to watch other people go about their business and all of these people on the other side of the door don't know that they're being watched. They have not a clue. And Sartre writes, you know, what an empowering experience it is to be able to watch what everybody else is doing not knowing that they are being watched. In fact, he refers to it sort of this, you know, you the unviewed viewer. And as that unviewed viewer, now you have the power. But suddenly, you know, as this unviewed viewer, you look behind you and you see that there's a keyhole and there's an eyeball in it that's watching you. 
And now you're no longer the, you, you know, you're, you are now the object and not the subject. Well, why is that terrible? Well, Sartre thought that one of the great vulnerabilities in life was not to be in control, and the thing that we suffered with and struggled with was to not be in control of what people would think of us. That according to, to Sartre, that humans had this need to control what people see of them and how they think of them and how you know they categorize them for someone to have access to our thoughts to be uncovered to not be in control of the the personal propaganda that we put out about ourselves is dehumanizing and it's unbearable for somebody to get that close that they see everything about you not just the good stuff that you're trying to control but even that bad stuff now again, he's an existentialist. He does not believe in moral absolutes, but he confesses that this is a weakness that all human beings, beings have. We desperately want to be covered up. We want to hide ourselves from everybody else's scrutiny. We do not want people to see us for who we really are or for what we think or for what we do. And the reason that we don't want anyone to have this kind of knowledge of us is because they will see things that we're ashamed of. There are things that they will see inside of us that will embarrass us and shame us. And Sartre is right. That's why it's ridiculous to think of this notion of guilt as being outdated, that it's primitive. Even if we make up our own standards, as modern people in the world want to do, we do not live up to them, and we want to be covered so that people do not see it. We are never the person that we want to be. We're never the person that we claim to be. We're never the person that we aspire to be. That's why we want to be covered up. And again, think of it in terms of the language that we use in our modern world when somebody of importance, somebody that's public, and it really doesn't even have to be a public person. Think about somebody that you're close to or that somebody you know at work. When they are discovered to be doing something shameful, they are what? Exposed. They've been hiding and covering doing something shameful, now they're exposed. And it doesn't matter what culture or century you live in. We want to be covered because there are things inside of us that we're ashamed of. I mean, we cover. Why do so many of us overwork? Why do we undereat, for that matter? There's this voice in your head that calls you a failure and we try to cover it by achievement or we try to cover it by thinness. Imagine. We are hiding because we know that there's something wrong with us. And this is why this is such an enormous promise in the Bible. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered by God. And all of that is done by God. How wonderful it is to be a person who says that their sins are covered by God. What an incredible peace. What a joy to know that you don't have to do any more of the covering up. You don't have to spin anymore your life. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to be, live in denial. You don't have to worry about what the mirror is saying about you. You don't have to worry about being exposed because it's God who has covered your iniquity. To know that you're accepted by Him because your sins have been forgiven. That's why it's important. 
But there's also a way of confession. There's a way to do confession that everyone needs, you know, everyone needs to, to, to have their mind wrapped around, around. There is a way to deal with the sin. There is a way to deal with the failure. Think about it these, these three or four ways. Number one, when we talk about this kind of confession in Psalm 34, it's always to God. Confession is to God. That's a theme in David's writing. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Go to Psalm 51, which is another psalm on David's sin. Probably the same sin. 32 and 51 are probably connected to the sin of Bathsheba. He says in verse 4, Against you, God, you, God only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you read that and, and you go, What in the world is David saying? Isn't this, you know, David saying, I've sinned against you, God, and only you, God. Isn't this the guy that, that committed adultery, objectified a woman? Saw her bathing on a rooftop and had to have her. And then kills her husband. So there's a sin against Bathsheba and objectifying her. The sin against her husband, Uriah, for having him killed. It raises a lot of eyebrows in people's thinking about David. And all the things that happened with Bathsheba and Uriah. It sounds like he is sinning against a lot of people in 2 Samuel. But David, here's the thing. David has a straight edge in his life which is able to, helps him to be able to know what is right and wrong. And that straight edge is not his own value system or somebody else's, some famous writer or philosopher's or mathematician's straight edge. His straight edge is God himself. My sin is against the straight edge of God's holiness. And he doesn't look to any other standard in his life. God is all of that for him. Now, now think how important this is and how deep a blessing it is. He says at the end of verse 5, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know what the basis of confession is? Why do we do it? to be forgiven completely. Which brings up the kind of a, a second part of this. It's not Confession is not just to God. But confession involves grief and not self-pity. Look at the last part of verse 5 again. I mean, it sort of looks redundant. I confess my tr transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It does. It looks a little redundant. But here, I think, is where the psalm really grips our heart and changes us. David is saying that God forgave the sinness of my sin. God forgave the sinfulness and the ugliness and the darkness and the warpedness of, of my sin. Now drop down to verses 8 and 9. And David says, writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. There's that straight edge. Verse 9, don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Now that's quite a graphic picture of human beings, right? The mule is walking along and he sees something on the left of the path that he wants to eat and so he starts to wander off the path a little bit and he gets kicked and he gets back on the path. He walks a little bit further, a little while longer. He's going along in the same path. He sees something on the left that he wants to eat, and he starts for it, and he's kicked again. Oh, 
and he gets back to the center of the path. And it happens again, and this time the owner is really upset, and he pulls back on that bit and that bridle, and you kind of get the picture. This mule may not be the smartest thing, but he's not going to veer off to the left to get something to eat. He's learned the lesson. But it's not complete. How? He, th this mule is sorry for the pain of his sin. But here's the thing. The mule eventually will head off to the left to get something to eat. I mean, an hour down the road, he sees something on the side of the road. He's going to go back and get it. Why? It's because this mule really doesn't know the heart of his master. The mule doesn't see the terribleness of his disobedience. He doesn't see the grievous nature of his disobedience. All he experiences is the consequence of that, that disobedience, that sin. And because that's true, because it's, 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 not, it, it's not an understanding of his master's heart, but it's just you know, dealing with the pain and trying to avoid it, it's not going to be very long, about the time that the pain ends, that that mule begins to head off to the left again of the path in order to eat something. Now, this happens all the time in counseling. A couple comes to counseling. They want to work on their marriage. The motivation to do the counseling is that finally one of the spouses who's been saying, you know, we need to work, we need to work, we need to work, we need to get this done, we need to resolve something, we need help, we need help. One of the, that spouse finally gets fed up with the lack of any positive movement or attitude or attempt on the other and threatens to leave. I'm sick of trying to live with you and deal with all of this stuff. You're, you don't care about me. You're not, you're not trying to improve yourself. You're not working on the marriage. If you're not going to work on the marriage, I'm going to leave. The spouse panics and says, well, I didn't know. Let's, let's work on it. And so they call me up. They, they come in and, you know, here's this, this, you know, this issue. Maybe it's a long-running issue of anger. And everyone who knows this person knows that this person has a problem with anger. People at work, people in, 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 in the family, the people at church, everybody knows that this person has a problem with anger. And, and this person begins to work on it, and you know the, 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 that is the spouse with the anger begins to work on it and, and finally begin to make some headway, and all is well, and they're back at the house, and they're all living, and everything's great. There are no angry outbursts, no tantrums, no tonal issues until they realize that that spouse is really not going to leave them. And they are not going to have to deal with the embarrassment and the humiliation of a failed marriage. And what is it that comes back? The anger. Now here's what I understand about that. That person who deals with their anger that way, in that illustration, kind of a composite of a lot of, a lot of experiences, that person is the mule of Psalm 32. That person is upset because of the pain of the sin, and not, but not upset because of the profound blackness and ugliness and the goo of it in our soul. They confess to stay out of trouble, but they are not confessing in repentance before God. They are sorry for themselves, but they are not sorry for the sin. And that's why they're like the mule. Well, confession not only involves... Those first two things. But a third thing, confession also involves a change in perspective. Confession means to come alongside someone and to see the, the sin and the hurt from their standpoint. It's, it's putting yourself in the shoes of the person that you've wronged. It's the word in Greek, homologain, which 
you know, is about speaking alongside someone or speaking in their shoes. What it is not is when we say, listen, if I've offended you, then I apologize. That is not confession. What that really means is I just don't want to apologize. It doesn't mean that you want to put yourself in the place of the person that you have wronged and to come to grips with the devastating nature of sin in the lives of human beings. I have a, a, a friend that, I, that I've not seen in about a decade or so, but he has a ministry um, to, to men who have been caught up in, in pornography. And uh, uh, in the last year or so, he, he has written quite a bit that's been uh, published in some journals and, you know, quite a... You know, if there's a, ever a go-to guy that, that I need in, in trying to help somebody, he's somebody that I would call and, and try to get some information. I remember sitting down when uh, it was discovered that he had this, this, this incredible addiction to pornography, and the addiction was to the extent that in his, his guilt and in his enslavement to it, the only way that he saw himself getting out of it was through suicide. And he will tell you that he was about 15 minutes away from suicide when the grace of God came into his life and he began to understand some things about the way out of it. But he was sitting down talking to a, several of us one day about all of the things that were transpiring in his life and he made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, uh, you, you know, I was just devastated, you know, to be exposed, to be uncovered, humiliated in what people were being able to see through the keyhole in my life. And I was, I, was, I was disgraced. I didn't think that there was any way out of this. And then it got worse. He said, the deepest day of my repentance was when I understood what it meant to my wife for me to be caught up in this sin. And we looked at him and he said, you know that when a wife discovers that her husband is uh, in, you know, caught up in pornography, that the emotional feelings she have are kin to those of a child that's been sexually abused. And he said, when I began to realize what I had done to her, then I began to discover really what repentance was all about. It's coming to God and saying, you know, I do not know what it must be like to create someone and then to sustain that person each and every day of their lives and then to be ignored by them day in and day out. I can't imagine that, but I'm trying, and I'm sorry, God. And I think, lo and behold, at that point is when relationships begin to heal. And I think it's that kind of confession of sin that, that brings us to the face of God, and salvation begins to be this point in which we wrestle with our own sinfulness and God's love and realizing that everything that we've done has not only wrecked God's good creation, but it's been an affront to His holiness defined and illustrated and demonstrated by His love to us on a daily basis. The last thing it is, is confession means taking responsibility. Again, in verse 5 at the beginning of it, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. You know, the only way that you can be covered by God is, not, is by not covering yourself. And go back to Genesis chapter 3. 
we know that uh, you know that it was perfect, and then they sinned. Adam and Eve realized that they're naked, and they they sew together and tie together the the fig leaves to cover themselves. And you know, then there's the proto evangelium, you know, the preaching of the first gospel, with where God approaches the man and the woman and the serpent. And then uh, in verse 21, here's what we read: The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. He's the one that covered them. After the Lord addresses all the problems in Genesis 3, there is a death that takes place in order for humans to be covered. In, 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 a, in a greater way, that points to the sin being covered by the death of Jesus. Look, look, look at what David sort of foresees in verse 7. David says, God, you're my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Somehow David realizes that the answer to his sin is not to hide from God, but to hide in God. That that's what his confession is of sin. It's not hiding from God, trying to cover up his own iniquity. He's not going to do that. He's going to hide in God. And that's, that's why the sacrifice of Jesus is as, as heinous and as brutal and cruel and, and black as it is. It is at the same time one of the most hopeful, joy-giving, life-transforming, radically changing events in human history. It's because when, when, when you find yourself not hiding your own iniquity, your own confessions, then what it means is that you can then be not clothed with fig leaves or clothed with animal skins. But what is it that Paul says in Galatians 3 that we are clothed with in our baptism? We are clothed with Christ Jesus and His righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Him to be iniquity, to be our sin, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. It is God. We're not covering up our, our own sin, our own iniquity, our own transgression with, with thinness and with overwork and overachievement and power and prestige and all these kinds of things. It's allowing God and confessing and coming clean, taking responsibility being honest, not full of self-pity, but full of grief because of our sin and allowing Him to cover our iniquity, not with our own good things, but by the blood of His own Son. When we're baptized, we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We participate with Him. We come up a new creature, clothed in Christ. Now we sing a song. Jeff's going to lead us in. And in any way, if our church can minister to you tonight through, through confession of sin and confession that Jesus is Lord and having your sins washed away through baptism or through the counsel of your shepherds to get yourself back on a spiritual footing that is solid, a, a foundation that finds you not 
you know, wallowing in self-pity, but grieving over the sins that you have committed in your life, but wanting to confess and to come clean so that your sins are forgiven and you find that blessedness once again. One of the reasons why we pray and, and confess our sin to God is because it releases us from not just the, the forensic guilt of that sin, but also the feelings of it. It's gone. It's gone. And if that describes you in any way tonight, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come and talk to them tonight as we stand and sing together.